Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. Hello, everybody. It's Liam, co-host of Uber Busters. Before we jump into this week's episode, I have to inform you that due to some really great technical issues, i.e. our recorder kicking out midway through the recording without me realizing it or me hearing it, I'm not sure why, we lost 40 minutes of my voice on the episode, which means we've had to do a little repair, cleanup, fix job. So you're going to hear me come in and interrupt every so often when I feel like I have to Uh, interject a point, but about midway through the episode, you're mostly going to hear from George and Shahir Dowd, our co-host, who does a wonderful show called The Only Podcast About Movies. So just a heads up on that. There's a a few little technical glitches I left in the pop so you know when it happens. And um, despite our technical woes, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. We would love to get more listeners. And rates, reviews, subscriptions help us do so, especially in iTunes. So take care of that. Next episode will be on Doubt, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman and Meryl Streep. And we're going to have a wonderful guest host on that one as well, Caitlin May Burke. We can't wait to share that with you in a couple weeks. Until then, enjoy this episode. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fogopoulos. And I'm Shahir Dowd. Mrs. Ulfobusters. Oh, someone said it right. <laughs> We're just like high school French stuff yeah. so far in life. <laughs> Could because and then pe- somehow it became metamorphosized into me and your their package yeah hmm. so. that's what we're gonna fade in on although <laughs> i hear saying <laughs> I, I did not i mean personally i did not wear speedos okay. at the beach growing up but yeah i think that's more like of a european thing uh, okay Rather i was like I, I just greek you know like no, I, it's I, just a greek thing yeah <laughs> yeah when i've been to europe i've just seen men wearing wearing very tight speedos yeah and wear very well greased and to be honest with you they're rocking it yeah you know like i'm like yeah even the ones you. that shouldn't although, be rocking them yeah yeah you really... just like although now i know to call them budgie smugglers budgie smugglers yeah, yeah. that's amazing <laughs> That's all I'm going to say for now on. That's what the episode title is? So, <laughs> It's definitely going to be the subtitle for sure. <laughs> it has to be. Yeah. Um, what movie are we talking about, George? So we're talking about uh, Synecdoche. Synecdoche. Which you can never say. Synecdoche. <laughs> New York. Are we sure that's the name? It is, yeah. It's actually a literary term. It's, yeah. it's a kind of metaphor. So it's a re- Yeah, it's basically kind of when a word or a term or is used to stand in for another kind of... Uh, uh, word or term so it's kind of like almost like saying like, like budgie like, smuggler for, <laughs> for parakeet I, I, was, I was thinking about like when you say like the crown to refer to let's say uh, british royalty 
So if you say something like, oh, yeah, that's something the crown did yesterday, that refers to, let's say, like, br- the context is, like, referring to, like, British royalty. I, I actually did look it up at some point today, and I don't have it written down, but it was, the my understanding was when the uh, the part is used to represent the whole. The whole, yes. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, so if you say, like, yeah, again, like, the Certainly crown, you're talking about, sense. let's say, British royalty. Yeah. In the or, context of the movie, yeah. Yeah. which is about George. Oh, and you know, I knew you were going to do this to me. Because we do it every, single, do it every episode. single episode of the show. And I was thinking works. about, like, how the hell am I going to summarize this film? Uh, well, I guess I should try, right? You should try. And <laughs> Shahir can jump in. If what year is this from, by the 2008. way? 2008. 2008. Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm just buying myself some time also to bring up the the, uh, the names over here because, again, I was like trying to figure out what everybody's name was and I totally forgot. Even though I saw this film three hours ago. Edit, edit, So edit. Philip Seymour Hoffman play, plays Caden uh, Cotard. Cotard, which you guys want to f- fill us in on what that is because you told me right before we started recording. is... Cotard Delusion. Is a yeah. Is it the Qatard delusion? <laughs> is a rare mental disorder in which the affected person holds the delusional belief that they're already dead, do not exist, are putrefying, or have lost their blood or internal yeah. organs. So it's which about is definitely fitting for this theater film. director named Caton Qatar. Caton Qatard, who we find that very very early on in the, that he's um, in a kind of loveless marriage with Adele Lack. Very Freudian name, which mm-hmm. I think maybe we should come back and discuss. Mm-hmm. Uh, played by Catherine Keener. Yep. And very early on in the film, they're both artists. He's a theater guy. She's a painter who does these, like, these very, very like interesting kind of miniatures. Mm-hmm. Um, she leaves with her child, Olive, to go to Berlin for a month and never comes back. And at some point very early on in the film, you find out that Caden um, is obsessed with um, this woman named Hazel, who works at the box office. Played by Samantha Morton. Yes. In an great. Amazing role. Um, she kills it. Works at the box office. He's infatuated with her. And he wins a MacArthur Genius Grant. And basically the entirety of the film is him attempting to bring to life this monumental theater production and basically this long um, like romance that he has with Hazel. And it's kind of impossible to kind of like summarize what this film is about because essentially what the film argues and tries to do, yes, that mm-hmm. it's about everything. And maybe we'll obviously maybe spend some time talking about like his vision, like mm-hmm. this thing that he in creates in these warehouses in New York. And basically, yeah, what he's attempting to do is and on like a kind of theatrical <coughs> stage is recreate life in all of its kind of like complexities, minutia. And we should say that all time sort of collapses on itself in the movie. And film's really surreal. He's very surreal. You don't know what the, the actual timetable of the movie is. And it's very self-aware in the yeah. way that it handles that. Time dilates and expands very yes, weirdly. It, it has something, I'm going to say it. I think about Inception sometimes when I watch about the, when I oh. watch this movie. Did it come out the same year? I think it did. I think it did. Yeah, yeah I, I think, think it's it probably accurate. It's directed by Charlie Kaufman. Yes, and, and written, written by his directorial debut, which is pretty. Yeah, pretty amazing. Pretty amazing that this is the first feature film this guy directed, and it stars Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. But he had, I mean, he was kind of the name brand screenwriter at this point. That's right? true. Like, like when you thought of screenwriters sh- around that period, adaptation. It was, yeah. Yeah, it was still those three films, Eternal Sunshine, Being John Malcolm, oh, yeah, and, Adaptation, Sunshine. and Adaptation. Human Nature, we all loved it. Yeah, all yeah. yeah. The Gondry vehicle. The <laughs> Gondry one I joined. Not to. The B-minus Gondry yeah. movie. I love this movie. I, yeah. I, I, I unabashedly love this movie. And I, I wonder if I love it because it's so unusual and difficult to like pitch to someone as a film. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think it's ambitious in ways and not entirely, you know, maybe not entirely successful, mm-hmm. but ambitious in ways that I think you hope that if you are an artist, you want to make films that are this ambitious and crazy. It's got a little mm, bit yeah. of the Fitzcarraldo kind of vibe to it. You know, like it's like 
creating something that's so or apocalypse now yeah this this sort of sense of like this is so off the beaten path and so unusual mm. that there's nothing quite like this film right. you know um i mean obviously there you could point to like euro filmmakers like mm-hmm. um uh, i'm thinking of the guy who made underground Emir Kusturica. Kusturica, yeah, yeah you could think about like Kusturica or something like that but but it's such a surreal take on life uh, I know this sound, that sounds like horribly like I'm not explaining what it is, but the other thing that I love about this film is it's such a sad sack of a movie. It is. It's, yeah. it's like, almost unbearable. It's yeah. unbearably sad, and mm-hmm. it's like you know I think that's what's defined him as a director. You know, between this and Anomalisa, is that he makes films about sad sacks of life, and and but there but but there is something about it that's completely compellingly honest mm-hmm. and truthful and 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 raw and naked you know you don't feel like like i feel like uh caden katard is a real piece of shit human being yeah. and but but like the fact that he is makes him compelling mm-hmm. and interesting and i also like him um mm. and i think that's sort of been an interesting uh, dynamic of his his work as a writer and and now his work as a director. I think the problem that he has is that he teamed up early in his career with like these really flashy music video directors, you know, Michelle Gondry, right. Spike Jones, and those guys are able to like translate his weirdness and oddity into like compelling visions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And while Kaufman is like an is an interesting visual stylist. He's in no way as dynamic as those other guys are. Right. And and that what you know what basically imagine if Michelle Gondry directed this film, I think it would be perhaps more dynamic, but maybe mm. not as truthful and sincere and sad totally as this agreed. one is. Yeah. yeah, I think the the complete mm. flashy, the mm. lack of flash in the style yeah. makes the movie hang together in a way that it wouldn't if you had someone who is clever in the way that spike jones or michelle yeah. Gondry is clever making it yeah exactly but i i, I remember like i i 100 remember the night i saw this movie mm. because it was one of those ones that i like put on dvd as like i'm just gonna check this out for 10 yeah, minutes yeah. and see what it's like and then mm. i watched the whole thing through i think the other thing for me personally as well you know and that idea that it's the kind of ambition we should all have as filmmakers. It's so challenging, yeah. so difficult. It's so it's reaching for something so far that yeah. nobody else is trying to do, or few people are trying to do. I'm I love um, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. He's like okay. one of my favorite writers, and I felt like this is one of the few films that I think embodies what magical realism actually feels like when you uh. read it. And and there's very few films that, that actually capture yeah. Yeah. that sense of how magical realism should play on film so i you know uh, it may it's a hard sell this so interesting you say that because i had a college professor who emailed me i hadn't seen this and he emailed me and he said hey you need to watch this movie (laughs) because it's the best like film he's like you know movie is really bad at metaphor yeah but this movie is probably the best take on existentialism i've ever seen it's funny that's the that's the term that i kept like rattling in my head like this is like an existentialist kind of um, did you like like essay so i so we exchanged some text messages while you were watching it because i just watched it i literally (laughs) watched like three hours ago while you're watching occasionally occasionally (laughs) and my wife was like can you all right i'm out and and liam was like i dislike this movie and (laughs) well it's so well i've 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 had a journey yeah okay Okay. the first 45 minutes i was totally on board with your take i was Mm. like i'm not feeling this and then at some point and there's no exact scene where this happens but for me generally it's when the film kind of becomes more about this the theatrical project that he's attempting to put on that i'm like 
I love this movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so for me, it's kind of this thing where like the first hour, not so much. Mm. And the last hour, I'm like, I'm totally bored. Yeah. So I, like, for example, like one me, of the things that like, yeah. p- like annoyed me for the first 45 minutes is like, why the fuck is her house on fire? Mm. And that, that, you know what's funny? <laughs> That's the moment I was on board. That's the moment, you're That's the moment I was the like. The first time mm. I saw the house on fire, I was like, I'm not feeling this. But then when it came back like the second, third time, I was like, okay, now I'm like in this film's world. Yeah. I'm getting it. I'm like, okay, it's I'm totally on board. We should say that like there's a lot to unpack in this movie and it would take a lot more than an hour-ish long podcast to do it. So things we touch on, uh, you should check out on your own. The thing I feel about this movie is like on my podcast, we try to like uh, break down how we feel about it to be able to like wrap that into an argument about whether mm. you should see the film or whether you shouldn't see the mm-hmm. film or what the film is essentially trying to say. I I always feel like I don't ever want to do that with this movie, not because I don't think there's a, a, a way to kind of unpack it or wrap it or you know present it to someone, mm-hmm. but because the journey is so personal yeah. for, and, and this film yeah. is trying to say so much that to to actually paraphrase it down somewhat reduces the experience of it. It can't. Mm. It can definitely not be like so last, reduced. Yeah, mm. our last episode we were talking about Twenty Fifth Hour, and mm. Liam read a review that described that as a tone poem. Yeah, and this film to me is so much more of like a tone poem because it's more about like a certain kind of affect or series of affects that the film is trying to get you to kind of like feel and to kind of like take this like emotional journey. Rather than any sort of kind of obviously like rational, let's say, like move from like point A to point B. But I think that there is a... So my experience is that there's a lot about this movie that really... So the... I don't generally... I like to what we would categorize as depressing movies. I right. like long, slow, Hungarian dirges. Right, right. I love... You're Rome, a Bellatar guy, uh, yeah, I'm right? a Bellatar guy. I love the Romanians. <laughs> I love Romanian bureaucracy in right. the movies. Like, oh, yeah, I yeah. love... Mr. Lazarescu. I love Lazarescu. Yeah. I love to that kind of like... What would my categorize as depressing? I think one of the funniest <laughs> Simpsons episodes is where Lisa takes them to the art house theater and there's the goat on the oh, screen yeah. and the goat's like, I've been alive for a like I, like, I would, I would, like I would watch that movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But there's something about um, Charlie Kaufman that bums me the fuck out mm. because I think he just gets real close to the edge of despair and just kind of leaves you looking over it well, there's for multiple, a long period of time. Yeah. There's multiple suicide attempts in this film. Yeah. And, one I, of, and they're one hilarious. Of successful, yeah. <laughs> and they're really funny. <laughs> one of which is very, very successful. The other one, not so much. Yeah. And I, so I struggle with that. I struggle with some of the, I think some of the characterizations of some of the women in this film, not right. all, but some of it yeah, is yes. really, I hate, the stuff with his daughter, which I hate it, which we can yeah. talk tattooed about. Wo- as, as the tattooed woman? The tattooed woman. It just doesn't... So, but then there's the question of like, how much of this are we supposed to take as literal? Because I don't necessarily think we are. Mm-hmm. But I do think it takes on a... The, my struggle a little bit with it is that I do agree that I love the, the the theatrical endeavor to like create this thing. But there's also moments where I just feel like it's a little too clever. Mm. And I think that you're right. I think that the thing that saves it is the i think it's incredibly competently directed and i don't mean that like i don't mean that negatively i mean that like there's a scene where he's cast philip Seymour hoffman has cast someone to play him and he sort of takes a back and she proceeds to direct a scene it's the funeral scene it's probably in the last is this when he's got the earpiece in yeah yeah yeah, and Diane she sort Deuce, of sta- right? well, Diane Weiss sta- yeah. stages the scene, and I was like, "God, in the hands of any other director, this could be such a bad scene." But it's like Kaufman just like lets it play and is wise I, with his camera angles, and like 
that saves it for me. But there's a lot that really frustrates me. About I think I think the thing there is as well is that Kaufman knows what he's doing with this film, which is that which is to say that I think in the hands of a less smart filmmaker mm-hmm. and a filmmaker who doesn't really understand how to layer things like this, like think about for example, Sucker Punch. Okay. Zack Snyder, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, which is a film about Classic. layering reality, yeah. right, 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 right. But it's a film that where you watch it and you go, "This person doesn't understand what the 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 relationship between these realities will actually mean when you stack them up yeah, against yeah, each yeah, other." Yeah. And there's and, a lot of intellectual lack. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like Ellen Lack. Ellen Lack is that uh, Adele? Adele, Adele Lack. Yeah, yeah. I I actually do. I agree with you that that um, I think the the problem with existentialist cinema in the hands of male authors tends to view women as prizes that are that, uh, that yes. are to be lost yeah. and and this film has many uh, moments where like Kaden Kadard you know Katard seems like yeah a pretty sad sack of human being to be around mm-hmm. yet women are inexplicably drawn to him at all moments and there's a certain you wonder if that's just this this affectation of the writers uh, frustration mm. at the world, you know. Yeah. Like I feel, I feel. I yeah, I totally feel so. that. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a little bit of Paul Schrader and Charlie Kaufman sometimes with this little bit frustration with the world, frustration with the way people perceive him. Yeah, and it, yeah. It comes out in these strange. Yeah, hours. but there's but there's always that one woman, or in, or in Katad's case, at least three, who who see the real Katard and yeah. like you know like love something about him. So the third major woman, yeah, in his life is played by Michelle Williams. Uh, her name's Clara Keen, and good work. Yeah, and she's an actress who uh, has worked with him and then eventually kind of they have this um, affair and eventually get married and have a child. And then she also kind of like walks out on him as well because he's kind of a sad side piece of shit. It's got one of my favorite scenes as well, which is is like, uh, she says, everyone's got a tattoo and she turns around and he goes, well, I've never (laughs) seen that before. Yeah, this giant back tattoo. (laughs) That is like, that this is, is my sense of humor. That is a very, very <laughs> funny scene. Yeah, and that's again one of those like I think, and that's also fairly early on, and then one of the like those uh, yeah. again early like very like surreal scenes where I was like, okay, like this is what <laughs> like this film is, and that's also like when time starts like moving very quickly, and yeah. you don't know what's real at a certain point. And you don't anymore. know what's real it or not. Yeah. You're like, what? That's also thing that something that I struggle with in the movie, and like maybe I'm just too literal, but I just was like. I don't know where to invest in in some ways and how to invest. Well, in it's in interesting too because. There, there's all, there's plenty of moments in the film also where he himself, as a character, doesn't realize how quickly time is going by. Where mm-hmm. he like says like, "Oh, it's only been a week," or somebody would be like, "What are you talking about? It's been like three months or like yeah. seven, seven years or something." And it's an interesting kind of dynamic also where, um, as a viewer, I think like he does a good job of showing you how like disjointed time is like through Philip Seymour Hoffman's character also being not exactly sure about what exactly is going on when it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, and just There's like a, the dreamlike logic of it all. I watched the video essay about this movie where they identified all the points of time that are at the and time wow. actually slips right at the beginning of the film, mm-hmm. which is that um like it opens on September sixth, and then when he goes downstairs and checks the mailbox, it's September 9th and when he opens the newspaper, it's September sixteenth. Uh-huh. It like it jumps within all that of, within that within, within that the first few scene. scene mm-hmm. What yeah. feels like one con- continuous yeah, scene. But, yeah, because because I and I definitely did not notice that you know mm-hmm. the first time around. I'm not I'm not a person who looks at dates on yeah. On things well, it's like a that. lot. It's a lot to think about. But but like I certainly this time around watching it, the the sense of the discontinuity of time as there as the as he's kind of like discovering that he's sick and or feeling yeah. you know like unwell about things and the the point between him you know realizing that uh, that his wife is going to leave essentially and, and how much that upsets him i think all that time stuff it's it's surprising how like 
the film at the beginning has this sort of like staccato editing style yeah. where like yeah. we're jumping does, between yeah. scenes really cool, really well. And I think for me, you know, I know you struggled with the film a little bit, Liam, but like for me, what it's one of those films where if you accept the rhythm of it, mm-hmm. then it's a wonderful ride. But if you ne- if you never get into the yeah. rhythm of this film, it's like an uphill battle. I may have way. been fighting it. There, there are certain movies that you watch at certain points in your life. And if you watch them, if you're trying to be a filmmaker or whatever, um, they affect what you think films can be. I am now thinking differently about what yeah. a movie yeah. can be. This is definitely a formative movie. I mean, the same thing with being John Malkovich yeah. for me in 99, 99, 99 and uh, adaptation a couple yeah. of years later. Those movies hit me like a ton of bricks. Adaptation didn't land for me oh, for some really? reason. I don't know why. Cause adaptation should, yeah, uh, and I love the trailer to that movie. I think it's one mm. of the best cut trailers ever. It is a really good trailer. But but the actual movie itself, for some reason, I think by the time we get into, uh, I forget the actor's name. Uh, Chris Cooper. In, yeah, Chris Cooper's mm. uh, character's sort of crazy breakdown and the house falling apart and oh, things yeah. like that. By the time we get into the actual Orchid Thief stuff, yeah. that movie suddenly starts falling apart for me. Interesting. It, it, it worked better when it was like Nick Cage on Nick Cage. Oh, that's when, when it was like fat face off. It's been such. Yeah. <laughs> I, forgot, I forgot about that. <laughs> fat face off. Very good. I for, um, totally forgot that. Yeah, about the tuna cages in that film. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the performances in this well, movie. What we should talk about? Yeah, Phil Zimmerman. Um, yeah, he's the well, guy. I, right? there, he's the guy. Yeah. I feel like. I I feel like it's it's not a movie of flashy performances at no. all. I feel like it's a it's a really well contained thing. I guess as much as I want to talk about the performances, I want to talk a little bit about the writing because I think one thing that that you know that Shahir that you were sort of pointing out is that probably what makes him a good director for this film is that he wrote it. Like he's yeah. a writer first of all, and I think he probably wrote it and went, "Great, let's make the movie I wrote." Yeah, that's no, what we're and, doing and here. You, and I don't think this is a film you hand off to anyone. No, it'd be impossible. Yeah, and unless it's Spike Jones and Michelle Gondry, and who produced I feel it? Like they both produced it, did they? or Mike, Spike Jones definitely produced it. And if they do, they're gonna change it in a way that I think is not true to the spirit of what it is. I agree. I bet the probably part of Spike Jones's role in it was like, let me help you get funding for this thing because yeah. I'm Spike Jones and I'll put my name on it, which you know is yeah. gonna help him because it's a twenty million dollar movie. It's a big movie. Well, it I shows, mean, but he's so. he's already won an Oscar at this point. That's Charlie true. Co- Charlie for Coppen won for adaptation. adaptation. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. true. So he's he's like in the he's he's not going to command another twenty million, which is kind of a sad. Oh, thing can I can, can I I found an interview with him recently yeah. where he talks about uh, uh, talks about this, uh, and I think it was with uh, Dave Ehrlich at IndieWire or something like this. But he said, um, "Can I read it to you? Yeah, yeah please, 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 please." Uh, let Kaufman ponder them for too long, and he's and it ponder his thoughts for too long and he invariably returns to his directorial debut the 2008 project that ended his hot streak <laughs> i think ultimately if synecdoche new york had made 50 million or even 20 or 30 then things would have been different kaufman said it grossed 4.4 million Oof. people want to be associated with th- with things that they think are cool and the business the indie business especially is built on that i wonder if it's not cool or sexy to be in business with me anymore because that's a big movie to have bomb it is, but yeah. I think I think it's completely on brand with everything he's done. And I agree, I, and I think the thing is, is that for some reason, being John Malkovich, Malkovich caught fire like nobody expected. That was also probably like a three million dollar movie, right? It's a much smaller movie. It doesn't necessarily make a difference, right? Yeah. But I think, but I think it did the, really explode in the weirdest way. It made so much money. But you know, think about those four movies from him: being yeah. John Malkovich, adaptation, and uh, Eternal Sunshine. Yeah, those are movies. I mean, are there movies like that today that are being made by a studio that are $20 million 
And mm. inevitably, inevitably, it's because, you know, things like Synecdoche doesn't make any money. Yeah, which is depressing. Can I, I tell you a story as well? Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just going to interrupt. Yeah, no, please do. Yeah, yeah. I, I, th- this will sound like a humble brag story for a minute, but it, it, uh, it, it does have a point, which is oh that God, I... God, dick. <laughs> <laughs> like, I got the call up to meet uh, an A-lister mm-hmm. uh, who liked my work and wanted to talk to me about, like, what I wanted to do. So an actor? An actor. And... and um. A well-known enough actor, you know, like we'll you, call him T. Cruz. You you know yeah, the you sure. you know the name. <laughs> you'd, you'd recognize the name. Can't figure and, it out. And, and I wasn't prepared for this meeting at all. Like the person who called me, who was his like assistant, mm-hmm. said he wants to meet you tomorrow. Yeah. Can you please meet him at this hotel? Tom Cruise. <laughs> and so I go. Tom C. I go thinking I I don't know what I'm doing here. You know, like yeah. uh, I think it's related to my music video work. And, you know, it's a it's a meeting about, like, what movies do you want to make or what uh-huh. kind of uh, films are you into? And, you know, like, and ev- inevitably, I pe- at the end of it, I'm, like, struggling to think about what to say in this conversation because yeah. I'm so uh, ill-prepared that I do the, the, the terrible thing of, like, pitching a movie as as a cross between two movies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, and I say, it's oh. Ghostbusters meets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And I'm Blues like, Brothers. the movie I want to make is a cross between Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Her. And oh, that's a good movie. <laughs> but, yeah. but this person who I, I is a lovely person and I deeply respect their opinions and stuff, uh, gets up at the end of the meeting uh, and says to me, you know, and we, we talk for like 40 minutes and that pitch comes somewhere early on. And at the end of the meeting, they say to me, by the way, if you're going to pitch me something, try to pick two movies that have actually made money. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, and the reason why that haunts me to this day you could have directed Mission Impossible Fallout. I really could have. I, I was so close. <laughs> I was so close. <laughs> the reason that it haunts me is the thing that I said at the beginning, which is that, like, I would have thought that if yeah. you had made Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, right. that is a career achievement. That is an artistic achievement yeah. beyond reproach. Mm-hmm. But yeah. apparently... Because it didn't make any, or I don't know how much money Eternal Sunshine yeah. made, or how much money, and, and I think her in the same way. If you had made her, that is an artistic yeah, achievement yeah. beyond reproach. Oh, it's a, amazing. Yeah. yeah, if you'd, and I think if you've made this movie, mm-hmm. it's an artistic achievement beyond reproach. But the fact that it made four point four million dollars off a twenty million dollar budget means that inevitably it's a failure. Yeah. And I was like, I'd never thought about movies in that way. Yeah, of course. But, but that's what Kaufman's saying here is that. Yeah. Is that no matter how good th- I think this movie achieves exactly what he wants to achieve, and I think it does it beautifully. Yeah. But it's a movie that made no money, so in the eyes of the actual way the industry yeah. works, this movie doesn't exist. And it also didn't really win any awards, right, or anything. No. I think major it might have too, been up for a thing or two, which I think is also like but another point, thing too, right? Like, so it's not just that it didn't make money, but it doesn't also bring any sort of like cultural. You know, yeah, it, doesn't, it doesn't affect the, the culture the way yeah, being John Malkovich exactly. does. Well, and it was also maybe we were looking at the end of this kind of bubble of yeah. this kind of stuff happening. Cause like they didn't parody it on SNL. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which yeah. I think is the, the moment you're looking That's for. really true. Yeah. yeah, no, totally. So with that in mind, let's come back to the acting. But I yeah. think that one thing that I, I, before we jump there, I think it's worth talking about. What is this movie about? Well, see, so. Because I think it's about failure. Oh, I, I, mean, I think it's about some other things, I think it's but about I think a lot failure is like a grand theme. Yeah. And Roger Ebert, who picked this as the best movie of the decade, yeah. mm. which is crazy because it's the last decade that he would fully, he would make it all the way through. Mm, right. This is like one of the last best movies the guy saw in his well, life. What are your thoughts but, about its, a pr- its take on theater? Because like one of the major themes for this. Uh, all right, everybody. Kind of it's Liam. This is where the technical glitches started, so I'll be dropping in to say some things. 
deal with a lot of these like existential issues or crises that we have in our lives right so like one of the things that i was really struck with by the Mm. film is like what it has to say about what art can or can't do in terms of let's say you know helping us deal with grief helping us deal with loss i mean that's one of the things maybe i mean that's just like one of these things that i kind of latch onto when i watch a film like this like i'm like i love the ekphrastic kind of stuff I think theater is actually part of the fabric of what this film is talking about, but not theater in the sense that, like, yeah, you know, there's a, you know, they do Death of the Salesman at the beginning of the film, and then obviously his project is ostensibly right. a theater project, but it feels more like an art project, you know, like a broader <laughs> yeah. art project. W- what's interesting to me is, like, I'm not a theater person, you know, like, I, I, you know, I find theater difficult to connect with and difficult to engage with, mm-hmm. but the way Kaufman presents theater here as, like, an important reflection on life and yeah. an important yeah. way to reflect upon the things that we are going through. If you're not into it, it, it sounds pretentious, but if you are, it makes theater relevant to me. You know, like it, it, it makes me feel like mm. this is what they mean when they say, the, you know, when, when people who love theater talk about theater, this is what, they, yeah. what they're talking about. It's that it's these transcendent moments. It's these transcendent kind of ideas about life and that sort of thing. Here I said that film is literal and theater is metaphorical. Huh. Wait, can you say that? So it was, uh, elaborate on that, that fil- film is far more literal than theater? Than theater. Why? Theater requires like a level of imaginative, you know, like displacement on the audience's part, right? Like they need to be right. able to believe that they need to be able to, be able to make the, the, the leap that the space that this actor is mm-hmm. in is actually a real space. And they, they can do that either by like transposing the idea that this is a real space right. or they can l- let it live in the abstract, you know, like the walls are paper thin and we can see the, the construction of it or what have you. Okay, so George didn't entirely agree, but then I used a really smart example mm-hmm. of saying that I could mime drinking water in a play and you right. wouldn't right. second guess it, yeah. but if I mimed drinking water in a film, you'd be like, What's that guy doing? Unless he lies on Unless it was Dogville. Yeah, 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 unless it was Dogville. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the thing you're bumping up against is that film also has that capacity. Totally. But it just doesn't... It does it in a... Sli- it do, well, it does it in a different way. Yeah. Well, like, yeah, exactly. I'm thinking, yeah. like, for example, like, big budget, big budget blockbusters, for example. But, even like, but, but then think about Dr. Caligari, for mm-hmm. example, you know, like, in the way that that kind of creates this abstract world. Totally, yeah. You know? I mean, the first one of the first things that came to my mind is, like, Stan Brackage. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. like, to what degree is that, like, literal? And obviously, I realize the majority of film is not like that, <laughs> and that's very, very avant-garde. Yeah, and so, and I think the reason I responded again is, like, it's basically... You know, if, again, coming back to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, mm-hmm. pitch a hundred years of solitude. Like, what is a hundred years yeah. of solitude about? Yeah, you know what I mean. And that's and but yet, if you and I think you, what the reason I told that story before is is that the clash of what the business side of what we do is versus what the artistic side yeah. of what we do is. The pitch of a hundred years of solitudes is like it's about a village over the hundred years, but it's actually about life and death and love and what and cycles and, cycles and, and it yeah but and 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 the difficulty there is that is that it's it's never going to be a good pitch you know like you like like synecdoche Mm -hmm. new york is never going to be a good pitch but it's such a unique vision that it 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 feels so the the fact that it works so well for me at least and that it's a terrible pitch is what makes it what makes it so urgent you know like Mm -hmm. it is such a there's such a deep connection to like this has to exist in the world because if it doesn't then film is ultimately meaningless and i know that's you know highfalutin but i'm just saying like that's that's why i respond to this so so much is that i i think it is 
ambitious in the hands of someone who understands how powerful the medium can be. He swings yeah, hard yeah, yeah. on this. But it's yeah. yeah. It's an interesting thing because like yes, I so I agree with you also that the film is very much also about failure. And again, this is where like I bring it back to kind of that um it's like an artistic failure it's both mm. like an artistic failure in the sense of like literally obviously thematically within the film itself and it takes on a personal failure as well but it's also interesting now i'd like to think about our discussion too about like let's say that it's very self-reflexively reflecting on what the medium can and can't do right so like it's interesting also because you mentioned like garcia marquez but there's also a reference to proust yeah in the movie too where you see you, you very briefly see the, the first page of um uh, swan's way yeah and like to think to yeah, think yeah. about like for example like that like as a medium right and like what the novel can do over like six or seven yeah books, books and yeah. thousands of pages that the film can't do and how this like strives to do something similar mm-hmm. but obviously because of like the medium itself like you can't do yeah but you know the one thing i, I always think about and it's, it kind of relates a little bit to swan's way as well the funny thing is that you know she's reading swan's way when uh he walks in and when they go out to lunch she's talking about reading kafka and how she's just opened metamorphosis oh yeah, so that's yeah, that yeah, sort yeah. of example of time jumping all yeah. over the place but um the other thing that i think is interesting is that i don't th- there are certain films or even TV shows, or I think Watchmen's a really good example of this as a, as a graphic novel, where it does what it does in a medium where only only that it, medium it can, do can do it. it. Yeah, right, and I yeah. think and I think this is a film where this could only exist as a film. This mm-hmm. could not. I don't think this could be a novel. I don't think this could be a play. I think this can only be a movie. The thing that it's structuring in in the medium so well is the is the is the time jumping. I think that's just something that film can do that no other medium can do as succinctly as effortlessly and as as, you know as a with a sort of stream of consciousness that this film does you know like i I could imagine writing on the page it's september 6th now it's september 16th or i walk downstairs to my to my kitchen and you know like and it feels like a month has passed but it doesn't work as well as just being a cut well i think we should talk about uh phyllis more hoffman his performance yeah yeah. Uh, (laughs) some guy (laughs) Some dude. I've been listening to the podcast and I've been uh, to your podcast. <laughs> I've been listening to other podcasts, not listening to you guys. Um, but I was th- I was thinking a lot about, you know, the way we ca- you guys have been categorizing Philip Seymour Hoffman's performances. And I think, you know, like obviously Capote is the is the the pinnacle of like, hey, look at me. I'm Philip Seymour. Yeah, it's 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 also like it's the. I think it's one of the few occasions where he's put on the center stage, right? Like, and it's, it's a, yeah. and the film, the, the reason to see that film is to see him, yeah. you know, like as, as good as the direction is in that film, but it's not, but there, it's not a flashily directed film. And I think, you know, like I, I talked to you about mission impossible three. And I think the reason I like mission impossible three so much is he's so well cast in that film. And he's got, he's got this sort of like indifference. And so mm-hmm. again, he's not the reason to see that film, but he brings this perfect energy to that character. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's the best one part of that film i think i think he's the yeah. best thing in the entire franchise yeah. you know like uh aside from tom cruise running but like um but but the i i think what's ex- interesting here is a he's like perfectly classed for this film and i feel like he when i watch it i feel like he he's a hundred percent invested in what this mm-hmm. film is trying to do. And he is working completely in service of what this film yeah. is trying to do. 
You know, like in uh, Along Came Polly, he knows, that, you know, like you, he knows what kind of movies. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. yeah. So he's like, I'm just going to come in and do my thing. In Mission Impossible 3, he's like, I know what kind of movie we're in. I'm going to come in and do my thing. But in this one, I really just get the sense that he knows what he's doing is worth it. And, and, and I'm going to work as hard as I can to be in service. Because the movie requires him yeah. to like age and, and do unusual things that make no... Con- yeah. yeah, but he's like... Oh, not at all, yeah. Perfectly, he's perfectly in sync with this movie, yeah. with what this movie is trying to be. And every actor in it is kind of in sync with what this movie is. And if, if one of them wasn't, you know, like it, nothing, nothing worries. Like Michelle Williams has the role of being out of sync with with everything that's happening. Like that's what her role in the movie is. And I think she kind of plays that well, but you need everyone to buy in and he buys in so well. He, you know, he has to, he has to do that. The technical acting thing of aging, aging through a film realistically, mm-hmm. which is a difficult thing to do, but I mean, doesn't seem difficult for him because he's such a good actor, but, um, or such a, you know, such, he has that ability to make that feel realistic in a way. There's a lot of great physical acting though in this film too. Also, especially like when his body starts failing in a variety of different ways and he gets that like, like tick in his leg Uh, and like selling the, 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 the fit that he has on the bed. Yeah. He says, I'm sick. I'm sick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, He's like convulsing. (laughs) So Tom Noonan at some point, yeah, comes on, he's like an actor in hand. He plays the role. He's, He's there at the beginning of the film. Oh, wait. Is he's, he? He's watching it? him right from like the the first scene. Oh, so he is watching. Oh, yeah. wow. Yes. Oh, yes. You're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Tom Newman plays his like yeah his double ganger. Let's or yeah, his, yeah. And he's just around. He's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. So my my take on what the film is essentially is that it is about uh, like um, who is the uh, who's the editor who wrote in the Blake of Walter Murch right. Right, wrote in the blink of an eye, and and in in the blink of the eye, he talks about like this idea that sometimes when you make a film, you have an overarching idea that you don't reveal to the audience, but you reveal to you use it as a way to structure how your film works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the example he uses in is in the Godfather. the The idea that they had in the cutting room for the Godfather was that Michael Corleone is there's a spotlight at the center of the film, and Michael Corleone is always trying to avoid it. And and he says, and it's only at the end of the film that he embraces what the spotlight is, mm-hmm. and so that's the sort of cutting cutting mechanism that you have for the film. And for me, like the sort of underlying idea that the film never explicitly states and may not even be true, is that Caden is dead the whole time, and and that this the everything that's happening, the mm-hmm. the theater performance is a manifestation of what he imagines the afterlife to be, which is that he's recreating moments from his life in real time as he's experiencing them. And there's this like, this this discontinuity between life and death for him. You know, and that's what Qatar's disease right. is for him. It's a person who imagines himself to be dead and living right. in a sort of limbo state. Right. And and the way he's manifesting himself is that he's uh, he's imagining life kind of happening and he's also commenting and recreating life as it's happening and tom noonan's appearance as a character speak to me again this is like entirely just a reading that that you know that i've just kind of i absorb it and i'm i'm happy if people are to to disprove me and i'm happy you know i I think it could entirely be wrong but it's the way i read the film Mm -hmm. and like tom noonan's character is like some part of of caden's idea of himself as watching from above like it could almost be like paternal or oedipal or something like that but it's like because tom noonan's character knows him better than he knows himself 
and in ways that no human being could know him and for reasons that don't even make sense like why is tom newman noonan watching him well it's important yeah and he says i've been watching you for like 20 years now yeah or or 40 years yeah yeah well it's funny because there's that one line too where he's like oh you're like your your poop is gray it's never yeah. been gray before and he's like yeah i know yeah i was like why do you know <laughs> that like, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's but it's like, like it just know. feels like he's like a, a manifestation of some part of his consciousness yeah. that has been like recording how he lives and then like allowing him to kind of play it back over time and, and he and he and he's able to like reconstruct it as it's happening right. you know which is what the performance is you know so like, so what do you then make of the suicide because i felt like when his obviously you know tom newman's character the double ganger like, commits suicide that also feels like very much like a turn in the film i think that's the point at which he starts you know like because at the end of the film he says i know how to do it now mm-hmm. it's that's the turn at which he realizes this entire process of reflecting upon the life that he's been living is turning into nothingness you know uh, like like it's dissolving I, it's, it's, kind of it's a... dissolving away and it becomes like this sort of you know and, and i think the thing that's beautiful there is that the the theater project becomes meaningless over time mm-hmm. it's initially it's like profound and weird and beautiful and like mm-hmm. you know the, the sort of s- scale and size of the whole thing is incredible but then over time as people start reflecting on themselves and he starts transforming into the cleaner yeah, and the cleaner yeah. starts transforming into him it just it starts to lose meaning and that's why it's like this part of his consciousness that just like lets go of this mm-hmm. right yeah. here i made a reference to hamlet by william shakespeare and i said oh that this too too sullied flesh will melt thaw and resolve itself into a dew that's right i'm educated well, yeah you, you drop some shakespeare <laughs> <laughs> well the mouse i was thinking about the mouse trap like the play within the play and like here you have like obviously this is like theater within the film but yeah. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Hamlet because at some point I did also think about that. We're talking about the Ethan Hawke vehicle, right? Of course. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the only one. version that matters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. To be or, or not, not to be. be. Not, not to be. be. <laughs> <laughs> and then he lights a cigar. Yeah. Here we talked a little bit about his yeah. daughter and yeah. her funny accent and her being taken away and the letters. And I just thought it was very strange. Well, it's like what she here said earlier, though, that like one of the... like. Um, failures in a lot of like existential or existentialist dramas is that the women are typically portrayed mm. as like objects or mm. as kind of represent like certain goals or mm. like or just not even necessarily like the male gaze but maybe that scene is a big gazy in that sort of way yeah but that they become like types and not people although i think this film to some degree escapes that because i think hazel's character is such an amazing like she does such a great job of transcending let's say any sort of potential like limitation that that character has but yeah. i also think like kaufman does a good job of like presenting her making her fully realized character yeah but i think the stuff with the daughter yeah i think the stuff with the daughter is problematic i could again like I, like after Problematic how well do you want to mm-hmm. in, in the objectification of her but or 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 what she represents i just felt more in the sense like i didn't get a feel for her as like necessarily as a character although again at the end when again you see her again like as a a four-year-old girl i was totally like you know like gripped by that like that was like so sad and like when she like lays out and splays out and like dies yeah um that was i felt like that was really touching but yeah i feel like some of the earlier stuff wasn't like working for me to me like adele leaving him is the rosebud of the film Mm -hmm. you know like in in the literal sense of like this is the thing that is that centers the 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 entire feeling of uh, that he's had throughout the entire film and and the daughter you know like like being tattooed and and you know for some reason i just think the the last scene with the daughter where she was like you know you're gay why don't you just admit you're gay you know like you know it it, 
I just find that hysterically funny yeah. for for some reason, you know, like I just, but I, but I think it also like speaks to the sense of like, she represents the loss that he kind of realizes that he's had along the way and, and Adele leaving, you know, like basically this life that he imagined or that he started with that he loses very early on is the, is the rosebud that he's trying to go back to at all times. Right. And the thing that he just cannot ever get back to, it's the, it's the loss of everything, and he recreates it with Michelle Williams. And yeah, like doesn't it doesn't care. work. It yeah. doesn't work at all. But I, but I think if you if you read it as like he is the sin, he is essentially the center of consciousness of this film, then then that makes sense because your 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 foils are entirely against you. You know, like whether you want them to be or not. Yeah, yeah, and I I don't know. I just found her de- the daughter's death, you know, uh, represents such a great loss to him. You know, like and. It, it it feels like that 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 is the essence of what he is like struggling through through this entire film is like the sense of loss that he has over everything and mm-hmm. there's there's no way he can kind of recreate that or bring right she's also the one factor that he doesn't recreate in the theater project right yeah, she like she never appears huh. in in yeah. in the in the project at all mm-hmm. you know be, and, and and you know like you said when you flash back to her as a kid and you realize that oh he he just ha- you know like i have i have a kid the same age yeah. and so like the idea that they grow up and transform into this completely other thing that has no interest in him whatsoever uh and in fact sees <laughs> sees him as like the reason why she has all the problems she has yeah um i think it's like devastating you know like it's devastating yeah, to think about yeah, he, much like Death of a Salesman. Yeah. Death oh. of a Salesman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Young people, yeah. yeah. Which, Which is, is like, what the film does. Yeah. yeah, and it's also really funny too. Is it his parents or something? I was like, why did you cast young people? I yeah. don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> that's like the one commentary is like the yeah. old guy. Like, that's the that's the point. She's <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I don't get it. it really well, and and this is, this is the thing about this film in general is like this is not a film that is gonna play well on a Saturday afternoon kind of thing. Oh, you know, like, crushed, it's yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not a film that it's like, <laughs> it doesn't even play well on a Saturday night. Yeah. You know, like what I mean? It's, it's like, this is a Tuesday night movie at best, yeah. you know, like <laughs> started at eight o'clock. Yeah. Can't eight o'clock. Too light. Yeah. Yeah. What are we to make of the ending when everyone is dead? That the project has gone on for this like ridiculous long time and people are starting to die off. But I also really like if you I think there is potentially also like a feminist angle or feminist reading with the fact that there's like this gender swap. Yeah. With. Yeah. So like Ellen, who plays this kind of like almost like mystical like house cleaner for Adele's character. Yeah. Yeah. And at the very end, yeah, he's, they swap roles and she becomes the director. And for the last like five or 10 minutes of the film, she starts telling him what to do. Oh, no. Just the fact that like, obviously, then she becomes the one like dictating to him what he should or should not be doing. But uh, yeah, and I, and I think, for, you know, like the way I'm reading the film is that like the boundaries between people and reality and structures are all kind of falling apart, which is why the theater project is falling apart into anarchy as well. Like, yeah. you know, like the, the way it's described or the way, cause you never actually see it falling apart. You just hear that you anarchy hear, yeah. is happening. And, it, and like occasionally he looks out the window and there's like a Zeppelin flying past. It's like yeah, this yeah, yeah. dystopia that's being created. Yeah. And it's like, it's all manifesting itself. And then I think, you know, you mentioned Inception yeah. earlier on, the idea that Inception where the, the dream falls apart and reality doesn't really make sense anymore. Who's the woman at the end? Oh, that's the... So that is interesting because she is the mother of the... Oh, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm the Ellen Page of this scenario. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a maze. Uh, is she the mother of the cleaner? She shit. I forgot because she that. mentions that, and we see the the only way we see because we've never seen this cleaner, right, Ellen? And yeah, it, like because the woman that is uh, the Diane Weist character is it Weist? Is that how you say it? She is playing the cleaner whom we've never seen. Correct. So we don't even know if this woman is the the person that she's representing is real yeah. at all. And we only know about the the mother uh, or the cleaner and the cleaner's daughter through a television commercial where they're represented on screen. And the uh. woman at the end says, oh yeah, you don't remember me. I was like, I was the mother of the kid in the commercial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she just like pops up and like, Again, I think he. What's happened here is we're refracting so much. Mm-hmm. You know, what's that French the Maison Abim? Yeah, The whole of reflecting yeah. mirrors. We're reflecting so much at this point that we don't even know where the beginning point of this this character actually even exists anymore, or is, or even is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's a touching scene, actually. Yeah. So yeah, he they sit on a bench, and he basically says like, "Can I put my like uh, head on your shoulder?" Yeah. And he does, and he does, and that's when the and then yeah. he says like. Well, yeah, but before that, he says, I think I finally, you know, figured out how to do it. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess, you know, like one, if you want to like do the the broski inception of this film mm-hmm. where people are like, no, it's actually this person's dream, yada, yada, yada. I mean, you could, there, I think I've seen arguments being made that that Qatard is actually a manifestation of this cleaner huh. whom we've never seen. And, you know, like, and, and by the end of it, he's actually becoming her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's the idea, you know, like the idea around it is, everyone is the center of their own film mm-hmm. or the, the center of their own story. Yeah. And, and you know, that's who this person is. Right. I, I mean, you know, whatever. Which they say also. Totally. Exactly. I think there's no doing key. that kind of like, no, it's actually, you know, yeah. d- pinning the film into like one or two things, which is what you should do with a film like Inception, but what you shouldn't do absolutely with right. a film like this. Here I made the point that the movie's not trying to be clever like a Christopher Nolan movie of Inception, but it's being intentionally obvious because ultimately this movie is about the fact that we're all going to die. Immortality. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned like that last scene with this woman on the bench who we don't know who it is and mm-hmm. I'm, you know, guessing maybe 5% of the audience has actually made the connection. Mm-hmm. Um, is actually a touching scene. And it's because, you know, what you just said, uh, Liam, which is that the underlying sense of what he's trying to do with this film is complicated, yeah. but it's never for the sake of being complicated or it's never for the sake of being clever. Right. You know, it is, it is, there is, he, I feel like, you know, another filmmaker who surprisingly does this and gets away with it all the time is Wes Anderson, which is uh, that he has yeah. scenes which are completely sort of comedically an- anachronistic, but they're touching at the same time, you know, because there's a sincerity to the moments that he's creating yeah. and there's a sincerity to the, to the exchanges that are happening. Like when the dog dies and just lets him die. Exactly. Aww. Yeah. When the dog, so sad. it's such a device. Yeah. 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 When Ben Stiller <laughs> yeah. says, I've had a really rough year, yeah, yeah. you know, like you're like, oh man, it has been really rough. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. It is. <laughs> there's a, have you guys seen, there's a music video Michelle Gondry did with Bjork called Bachelorette. Yeah. The one where it's like she finds a she's telling a story about a book that she finds and then she takes it to a press agent and then becomes like a star. Yeah. And, you know, the book gets published or something like that. And then they're putting on a play of mm-hmm. her finding and it keeps building and building, building. And the, oh, well, I, I was going to say that this film feels like, like a, a, yeah. a, a full, like a Russian doll kind a of feature, thing, yeah. a feature length adaptation of that. And what's cool about it is that it's not it's not like. Um, uh, 
the scenes don't perfectly mirror each other where you're seeing something being reflected upon itself to be a perfect reflection when they reflect so when when Caden is watching himself do a scene uh, or you know watching actors play a scene that he has done it's entirely different to the way he interprets it and then when it gets yeah and then it gets repeated a third time and it's entirely different again and it's it's not about like how can we recreate these moments it's about how different these moments are once they're interpreted it's funny though too because now that we're talking about it too i forgot that there's that very very early scene too when he's talking to hazel and she basically directs him right he's and she's like this is where you're gonna say now and she's like you're gonna say like you have like beautiful eyes yeah and it's like an interesting kind of thing to think about like how like that theme let's say runs throughout the entirety i don't know what to do with it right Mm -hmm. now but this idea of like him constantly let's say being um i mean not constantly but that yeah it's it leads up to this point where where he believes he's in control right he's Mm -hmm. like the director he's like the genius but it's Mm -hmm. the other people that are around him that are in fact like dictating yeah um what will or will not happen to him here we talked about the idea of making an unfinishable masterpiece, yeah. and I thought a little yeah, bit about the Moscow yeah, Art like, Theater because you know, like again, someone's, theater major and how they would rehearse yeah, Hamlet yeah, or like some equivalent now. for seven <laughs> years <laughs> or longer, like Hodorowsky's Dune. Yeah. yeah, you know, like it's the thing that ne- yeah, the thing that never gets made. But yeah, the 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 unmaking of it is more interesting than the making of it. But that's like the perfect uh, yeah, it's perfect art object is the mm-hmm. one that is never completed or like kind of like doesn't exist. Because obviously, kind of like it's yeah, it transcends, let's say, any sort of kind of like limitations that might exist in any actual completed work of art. Yeah. Okay, guys, let's wrap it up. Um, this yes, this is Liam. Three weeks in the future, but let's wrap this conversation up. Shahir, tell us about your shows and your work. Yeah, yeah, we could. Yeah, we could. Uh, so I am from the only podcast about movies, which makes it weird that I am here right now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you guys got a little bit. Believe it or beef. not, yeah, <laughs> other po- movie podcasts do exist. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I host a movie podcast called The Only Podcast About Movies. Uh, there is an asterisk next to the only uh, with my co-host Matt Kroll, who couldn't be here tonight. Uh, who are hoping to get him in. He wanted to do The Master, by the way. Ooh. Um, I'm gonna love. Yeah, can't yeah. wait to do the master. Yeah, yeah. Liam was hey, like, was "Let's not do the master." I want, you know, like I think the master would be an easier conversation to have. I want. I also wanted to do uh, before the devil knows you did. Yeah, uh, but I think I the, the the reason I wanted to do this film is that this is a film that I haven't had a lot of opportunity to talk about, and like you know, it's just a movie I just feel like I want to talk about. Whereas the other films, I want to dissect and like figure out what they mean. At any rate, only podcast about movies. You can find us on all the Twitter, sh- uh, on all the podcast streams, uh, www.onlymoviepodcast.com. And you can see my work. I'm a filmmaker as well. Um, you can see my work at uh, shahirdowd.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-U-D-A. Did I just spell my own name wrong? <laughs> D-A-U-D. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Try with the last name like Forgopolis. It took me a very long time. <laughs> to be able to say out yeah. loud. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And it was great because you are Ellen Page for this very, very complicated it's, movie. There's a or maze of Marion Cotaz trying yeah. to kill me. <laughs> I gotta go back and watch that movie. Yeah, it's been a while. Directed by fascists, but what are you gonna do? What? What? Inception. <laughs> we just have this ongoing. Uh, I think it's a joke. Liam takes it very personally about Christopher Nolan. Oh, see, yeah. that's the good stuff. Like Matt and I's entire podcast is based on each other, of of us yelling at each other. I did like your Hobbs and Shaw episode. Really? You guys, yeah. <laughs> you don't Neither need have to. I. I'm not going to. But, you don't need to. But I listened to them talk about it. <laughs> I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fogopoulos. I'm Shahir Dowd. Oeuvre. Oeuvre. Oeuvre Buster. Yes! Yes! We went around. We did it. Bye, guys.